Living things look as though they've been designed at a fantastically complicated level. What Darwin showed is that you can get the illusion of design with virtually nothing. It seems there was an explosion so huge that it created an entire universe. The Big Bang. No one knows what caused it, but we think that the bang created space, time, and all the matter in the universe. Her name is Ida. She's 47 million years old, and you're looking at one of our ancestors. She is, according to scientists, a direct relative. Ida and her descendants evolved into humans. Since Darwin, mankind has been looking for the missing link the primate that's at the root of our creation. And this is she. Evolution is a fact. It's a fact which is established as securely as essentially any other fact that we have. It could be that uh, at some earlier time, somewhere in the universe, a civilization evolved by probably some kind of Darwinian means to a very, very high level of technology and design the form of life that they seeded onto perhaps this, this planet. You're listening to Table Scraps live on Pirate Christian Radio. You know, you go to certain places and you expect to hear worldviews to be uh, tinted by certain things, but you go into a classroom, a classroom that teaches something like science, and you expect a certain objectivity with that science. You expect that in the math room, wouldn't you? I mean, you go in and you find out your multiplication tables. That worldviews don't affect the different uh, multiplication tables. Why then does it change when you get to the science room? Well, we're talking tonight about evolution and creation science. You're listening to Table Scraps Live on Pirate Christian Radio. I'm your host, Evan Gigline. And our host, or excuse me, our, our guest for uh, tonight is Dr. Charles Jackson. He has a master's in environmental biology from George Mason University and a doctorate in, in science education from the University of Virginia. And he's the director of campus ministry at Creation Truth Foundation. Uh, Dr. Jackson, welcome to Table Scraps Live. Thank you. Now, tonight's program is live, as the name hints. We're broadcasting to you live from Pirate Christian Radio this Sunday evening, January the 3rd, 2010. And you can call in with your questions and comments by calling 866-851-5523 or send us your emails, questions at tabletalkradio.org. We are here to take all of your questions about creation and evolution uh, that's 866-851-5523, or send us an email, questions at tabletalkradio.org. Now, Dr. Jackson, uh, to get the ball rolling here, um, take us back to 1859 uh, with Charles Darwin and the uh, book that, that he's known so well for, The Origin of Species. What did we know scientifically at that time, and how did the theory of evolution compare to uh, the science that was available to scientists at the time? Well, we really knew very, very little, of course, compared to what we know now. I mean, all the different advances and all the knowledge. And Darwin was banking on the notion that advances in science were going to 
gradually flesh out and fill in all of the very many problems and gaps that, that were in his theory, and that eventually discovery would uh, vindicate him. Uh, very, very little was known. And as a result, his theory sounded uh, plausible. sounded like it might actually work. Just like way back in the day, the idea that the sun goes around the earth, I mean, that is what it looks like. We didn't know enough to know that that couldn't be. Uh, and at the time, it, it sounded good. But as we learned more and more, and uh, with Tycho Brahe's discoveries and all his uh, observations, and then his protege, Johannes Kepler, and all the things he did, and then finally Copernicus uh, uh, brought the death of the, uh, the Earth-in-the-center theory of the solar system, the geocentric theory of the solar system, and brought it forth the heliocentric. Because of observations, because of new discoveries, Darwin today would never, never have tried to suggest such a theory, knowing what we know today. But it's for other reasons, other than scientific, that the theory is clung to today. Well, elaborate on that. What um, do we know from science today that Darwin didn't know that would sway him, sway him from this theory of evolution? Well, you, you, this past year being the year of Darwin, his 200th uh, birthday, and as you just mentioned, the 150th anniversary of the publishing of his book, The Origin of the Species, um, Darwin uh, didn't know very many, many things. And uh, the evolutionist community has just celebrated Darwin this past year, and one of the big things they keep saying is, oh, Darwin just didn't know so many things. And so he had a few little... Minute details of his theory wrong, but oh, if 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 he knew everything we know now, you know, oh, it has just vindicated everything, and that is just fantasy. I can say that unequivocally: fantasy, science, logic, data, facts, and discoveries have made it with everyone, especially in the past twenty years, has made the Darwinian uh, hypothesis to look. Just just foolish, more and more foolish every year. And the EDA uh, fossil, which I heard you, you mention in the beginning, Tim White at University of California, Berkeley, the leader of the team that discovered EDA, said it's not the missing link. And yet every news release you've seen says it's the missing link. He said it's, it's not. It's something like the missing link. And every single missing link fossil you ever heard of, that's what the discoverer says. Well, they always know there's something that disqualifies the, the fossil they found from being the actual missing link between dinosaurs and birds or reptiles and birds or between fish and amphibians or between monkeys and people. They, they always know that something about this particular fossil disqualifies it from being the link, but they'll say, but, but the link would have looked a lot like this and probably lived at the same time. And then the media just picks up and runs with that ball to the, to the, uh, uh, to the end zone and... And the discoverer is left in, in the dust going, but it's not the missing link. Next thing you know, it's in all the textbooks too. And this is how misinformation happens. And even if I didn't believe in creation, even if I was an evolutionist, I would still be enraged as a science teacher, and we're supposed to be purveyors of truth, uh, that this kind of really very poor education and terribly poor examples of scientific thinking go on and are actually approved of by the media. You are listening to Table Scraps Live. I'm Evan Giglion, and our, our guest for tonight 
uh, broadcasting to you live Sunday, January the 3rd, is Dr. Charles Jackson of Creation Truth Foundation. And we are taking your phone calls, 866-851-5523, or send us an email, questions at tabletalkradio.org. Now, uh, Dr. Jackson, I want to get your reaction to this um, the, this argument about whether intelligent design uh, is the same thing as creationism. And this audio clip comes from Dan Abrams, uh, the MSNBC TV program, The Abrams Report, and this is from 2005. But if I could get your reaction to this uh, clip right here. Okay. Take. I have two fundamental problems with intelligent design. Number one, I think it's somewhat dishonest. It is another name for creationism. Who else is the intelligent designer? I have the utmost respect for those who believe and admit they believe that God created life. But the intelligent design movement refuses to come clean about that. Number two, intelligent designers have provided no new evidence to show why evolution should not continue to be the science taught in schools. They offer no other scientific theories. Remember, a scientific theory is not just a hunch. It's, in this case, the conclusion of the scientific community based on evidence, fossils, peer-reviewed studies, etc. Why don't the intelligent designers question the theory of relativity or gravity? Both those theories have unanswered questions as well. Maybe it's because those theories don't upset those who want religion taught in schools. Dr. Jackson, your response? Well, evolution is a religion that's taught in the schools for one thing. Uh, That old saw is is, uh, pretty worn out, but it's what they continue to sing all the time. And as far as uh, law of gravity or, or relativity being taught in the schools, Um, Those things are taught with a grain of salt. Everyone is taught that uh, Einstein's theory needs Newton's theory and that we still have to find the grand unification field theory. Uh, The theory of gravity, we do calculations, uh, and those calculations work. We get results. We get exact results based on Newton's uh, law, law of gravity and the equations for that. That doesn't happen with evolution. You don't have hard science with evolution. You have a philosophy going with evolution, and at worst, it's a religion that's being taught in the schools. And as far as uh, 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 intelligent design, yeah, it comes under the tent, or at least creation comes under the tent of, uh, in a Venn diagram, under the tent of uh, intelligent design, because creationists are much more uh, strict and uh, uh, specific in who they're talking about. Now, I happen to know that some of the people in the intelligent design movement do not take the Bible literally. Some of them believe that the earth is billions of years old. Uh, There's even one in the intelligent design movement, a very prominent man, uh, who is in the Universalist Church of Sung Young Moon. He's not a Christian at all, doesn't believe the Bible at all, but just says there must have been a designer uh, they're leaving out who it is on purpose. And granted, probably many of the intelligent designers are creationists. But it's irrelevant to me. I think intelligent design leaves out so much of the story, it makes it more difficult to scientifically answer the questions that the intelligent designers get asked. When as a, as a young earth biblical literalist creationist, I find it far easier to answer with plausible uh, uh, sane, sanguine question, answers to questions people ask me uh, than when I've had to uh, 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 present as an intelligent design theorist where I've been asked to limit myself in that way. I don't think it, it works as well. I don't think, I, think, I don't think there's any dishonesty. I just think there's an incompleteness. 
you can uh, call in to Table Scraps Live by calling 866-851-5523 or sending us an email, questions at tabletalkradio.org. Dr. Jackson, we get an email from Brian in Aurora, Colorado. He asked this, what is the connection between the ideology of evolution and the environmentalist movement? Well, um, the Bible says that we are supposed to be stewards of the earth. Uh, Adam was supposed to tend the Garden of Eden. We, we refer to sometimes to this as the Genesis mandate. God expects us to conserve. Uh, I have a master's in environmental biology. By no means am I against conservation. Uh, in that sense, I suppose scientifically and socially I might be called liberal. But uh, evolution uh, says that humans are animals. Um, and an evolutionist might say, and some of your uh, uh, pantheists, uh, your Greenpeace-type people, might say that humans are the problem on the earth. They are the infestation. They are what is destroying, and that the world and the living things on this planet Earth would be a lot better off if humans just weren't here. Well, I mean, I think it's true that if humans made better decisions and were better stewards of what God has entrusted to us, yeah, that'd be true. But to say that humans are not a part of nature, that we, want, we don't belong here, or to say that we're just animals, a species that has gone evil and needs to go extinct, the, these, are, uh, these are totally philosophical positions, which they're entitled to, to make, but they have absolutely no backing. There is often a connection made <coughs> between an, uh, ev- evolutionists and environmentalists. I'm an environmentalist, and I'm not an evolutionist. Um, I think, uh, actually, if you do believe in evolution, then you believe in survival of the fittest. If you do believe in evolution, then you do believe that extinction is absolutely essential for evolution to move on. And if you are an evolutionist, we humans as the dominant species should work to extinct any other species that is competing for the resources on this planet. We should kill them off as soon as we possibly can. So actually evolution is a terribly anti-environmentalist philosophy, in my eyes, just because of survival of the fittest. Uh, part of your work at uh, Creation Truth Foundation is dealing with uh, textbooks. And I, I'm curious, how do you respond to someone uh, who says that we shouldn't have creationism in the textbooks because it's not science? You know, uh, to say that God created everything in six days, that's not scientific. What's your response to something like that? Well, I mean, it's true that uh, we scientifically can't prove that God created everything in six days. But there is an awful lot of scientific data that points to the idea that somebody did all this and it didn't happen by itself. As a matter of fact, there's no scientific uh, evidence backing that it could do it all by itself. It's against the known laws of science. And, yeah, you could suggest the different theories as to whether it was six days or whether it was Jehovah or whether it was Ra or Hare Krishna or whoever you want. You know, I don't know Allah or I don't want to miss anybody's God here. But, <laughs> but um, or, or maybe Richard Dawkins and his idea that aliens made us. You know, or the, the flying spaghetti monster. Or the, or the Church of <laughs> FSM, right. That his, uh, touched by his noodly appendage, you know, we were then created. Uh, lucky the leprechaun could have made us. It doesn't matter what I'm saying is is that evolution's impossible and that uh, we, we shouldn't be lying to students. You know, if they would just take the lies out of the book, I don't care if they want to put in scientific data. I don't care if they want to put in people's opinions. But there are lies published as facts in science textbooks and taught in classrooms, not because the teachers are liars, but because they've believed the lie. That's something. And also, uh, you can't get 
science teaching on the origins of things without philosophy. You know, until the 1870s in this country, there wasn't something called science class. It was called natural philosophy. In all classes, college level and secondary school, science was referred to as natural philosophy. And all the great scientists of of all time until the the uh, mid-19th century were philosophers of sorts. And uh, you really can't do science, especially you can't do uh, science that's less provable, that's more tentative, without being philosophical. You can't do stuff on origins, not the origin of the universe, not the origin of life, and not the origin of species without getting philosophical. And that brings you right up to the edge of religion land, and now you're talking religious ideas. It's inescapable. No one can get away from it. Evolution answers religious questions. Where did I come from? Why am I here? How did I get here? Where am I going? And what's the meaning of life? Evolution has its own answers to those questions, and they are taught and implied, and those are religious questions. What do you think about this uh, topic? We're talking about creation and evolution with Dr. Jackson of Creation Truth Foundation. You're listening to Table Scraps Live on Pirate Christian Radio. You can call us live here in the Table Talk Radio studios. Uh, The number is 866-851-5523, or send us an email, questions at tabletalkradio.org. Dr. Jackson, uh, going back to what you were talking about just a second ago about the lies in those textbooks— can you address, um, uh, bring to front, give examples of a few of these lies that are commonly in science textbooks? Oh, I, I, I have <laughs> like five presentations of an hour and a half each on this, but let me just hit some of the more popular ones I hear all the time. Um, the idea that, that we used to be rats and fish and stuff, and that's proven by these leftover organs, or, scrap organs that are left inside our bodies. They're vestigial organs, the evolutionary leftovers of the, the ages past when we used to be different kinds of creatures. Our appendix, our wisdom teeth, uh, the, the tailbone or the coccyx, it's called the tailbone, the, uh, the gills that we're supposed to have you know, when we're... Uh, uh, pre-born uh, in, in, the, uh, in the embryonic stages. All of these things are hugely misrepresented. Your appendix, let me just do one. I can tell you there's just as much stuff on all these other ones. You're, it's ridiculous to say that the appendix comes from a past time and it's not used. Before you're born, before your, your blood cells are manufactured by your spleen or your bone marrow, your, your appendix makes it. Uh, makes the red blood cells. Uh, and also the appendix is highly vascularized with lymph vessels. It's intimately associated with the immune system, just as much as your thymus and, and your lymph glands. And it actually is known to provide uh, uh, immunity to a certain strain of polio also. We also believe that in recent recent uh, research, the past uh, five years, that the appendix uh, stores bacterial colonies uh, so that in case something happens and your, your bacterial colony and your large colon uh, dies, uh, the appendix can reseed, sort of like eating uh, Activia yogurt or something, can reseed the E. coli uh, uh, that are growing in your, in, in necessary for proper health um, in, your, in your colon. And, and there are people that have also been doing research that the appendix also releases a lubricant that helps the, the, uh, uh, the waste move through the bowels uh, better. I mean, to say the appendix is useless, oh, you can live without it. I can live without my left th- thumb, too. But that does not mean it is useless. Uh, how, then, would you respond to uh, this following audio clip? Uh, here we have Dr. Eugenie Scott from the National Center of uh, Science Education, and she's speaking here before the the Texas Board of Education answering some questions from one of the board members. Uh, but she here makes the argument that these weaknesses of evolution are just anomalies. And here, this is what she says. 
Dr. Scott, thank you for being here. You're, you're saying that there are non-existent weaknesses of evolution. There are no weaknesses to the theory of evolution. Not in the sense that the term weaknesses is used in this um, rarefied environment. Uh, by weaknesses of evolution, the critics of evolution, the critics of the idea that living things had common ancestors, what you've been referring to as macroevolution, their idea of weaknesses really consists of going through the literature and pulling out at best anomalies that might question some detail of evolution, either about the pattern of evolution or the process of evolution, and then claiming that those anomalies, alleged anomalies, somehow question the whole issue of whether living things had common ancestors. This is not how science is done. And is this, is not a, this is not a good instructional strategy for students. Okay, uh, Dr. Jackson, is it possible that these uh, lies that you say in the textbooks are just anomalies? Well, you know, when you asked me to, uh, to give you an example, I gave you five, and then <laughs> I gave great details on one of them. When they asked her, to, did you hear her mention any specific at all? Zero. Dr. Scott is a paleontologist. Uh, uh, she's a reputable scientist in that sense. But she made nothing but glowy generalities. She said nothing the entire time, like a good politician. Sorry, politicians. But she said <laughs> nothing. She, made, she didn't counter any claims. She didn't make any claims. She just said, believe me, the things they're talking about are nothing but anomalies. Well, I have heard Dr. Scott on, on television, and I've heard her in person several times and met her. Uh, one of the things she is, is often want to say is that uh, creationists like to point out the origin of life as uh, the beginning of life as the soft underbelly of evolution. But really, of course, that has nothing to do with evolution at all. You see, evolution picks up after the first living thing uh, was, uh, was created. Well, then why does every single science textbook start with the chemical origin of life, how those chemicals in the ocean just came together and made DNA and RNA and proteins and all the amino acids and lipids and things and just came together to make a living cell. You see, that's not uh, irrelevant to evolution. It's step one. And she, she didn't mention any specifics. Anybody, anybody, a creationist or an evolutionist or a preacher or a politician, anyone who won't answer a direct question with a direct answer, you know they're hiding something. Call it. If it smells like a skunk, it is. Call it in your own heart and realize it. I'll answer specific questions. If I don't know the answer, I'll tell you I don't know. But I won't make up some kind of lame oaks. I'm sorry, that was lame -o. Dr. Scott's one of the most uh, intelligent of the evolutionists uh, uh, that are, that are uh, evo-evangelists. And uh, she knows exactly what she's doing when she makes an answer like that. All right, with uh, about 50 seconds before this uh, commercial break, tell us a little bit about Creation Truth Foundation and the work that uh, you guys do over there in uh, Noble, Oklahoma. Well, we do presentations for churches and other kinds of civic groups. Uh, we do tours of, uh, of different evolutionist museums. Uh, we do programs for churches. We do programs for homeschools. We have a lot of publishing concerns. We're just finishing up a... Uh, the grade three through grade six curriculum, the sixth grade could really be used up to eighth grade. It's very advanced. It's very well done and sticks to the national science standards. I've made certain of that. And it also reflects biblical worldview. And that's who we're selling this to. Yeah, Christians who believe the Bible is literally true. But that's the kind of stuff we're doing is encouraging those who already believe in creation. But we, uh, we don't shy away from public debates at all. And, and there's no need for us to do that. We, we're, we're not afraid. We're not afraid of the truth. 
You are listening to Table Scraps Live. I'm Evan Gigline. We are here with Dr. Jackson of Creation Truth Foundation. If you want to check out Creation Truth Foundation, go over to creationtruth.com. We are taking your uh, questions live, and uh, this break would be a great time to call in. The phone number is 866-851-5523, or you can also uh, call in or send in your emails, questions at tabletalkradio.org. After this break, we're going to continue our discussion with Dr. Jackson on evolution and creationism, and we'll be taking your phone calls uh, right after this. So don't go away. Uh, We'll be uh, taking your phone calls on Table Scraps Live. Next next, uh, Table Scraps Live will come to you on February the 7th. Uh, It's uh, talking about holy baptism with Pastor Eric Brown of Zion Lutheran Church in Lahoma, Oklahoma. Don't go away. We'll be right back. More Table Scraps Live. Listening to Table Scraps Live with Evan Gigline. We'll be right back on Pirate Christian Radio. Hello, this is Pastor Brian Wolfmuller, co host of Table Talk Radio. You know, one of the marvelous things about the gospel of our Lord Jesus is that there is always more, always more grace, always more mercy, always more forgiveness, always more love, more than we could ask for, says Paul, or even imagine. Well, the same thing is true on a smaller scale of Table Talk Radio. There's more. There's more podcasts, there's more radio shows, there's more articles to read, all at www.tabletalkradio.org. Hello, we hope you're enjoying the first ever Table Scraps Live. Next time on Table Scraps Live, we're going to be talking about the Sacrament of Holy Baptism with special guest Pastor Eric Brown of Zion Lutheran Church in Lahoma, Oklahoma. So you can call in with your questions about baptism this will be Sunday night, February the 7th at 8 p.m. Central Time, again heard on Pirate Christian Radio. Have you always wanted to say, the other day when I was listening to Table Talk Radio, well, now you can. And if you want to keep saying that, you can find our podcast archive on our website, www.tabletalkradio.org. Everyone's favorite Lutheran theological game show, www.tabletalkradio.org. Thanks for listening. Hi, it's Evan Gigline. It is my pleasure to present to you this production of Table Talk Radio, Table Scraps Live. We would like to hear your feedback on this broadcast. Just send me an email, evan at tabletalkradio.org. Also, this broadcast incurs a few extra charges So if you would, consider making a donation to Table Talk Radio on our website, tabletalkradio.org. But thank you for listening to Table Talk Radio and Table Scraps Live. Our whole universe was in a hot, dense state that nearly 14 billion years ago expansion started. Wait, the earth began to cool, the autotrophs began to drool, Neanderthals developed tools, we built a wall. We built the pyramids, math, science, history, unraveling the mystery that all started with the Big Bang. Welcome back to Table Scraps Live. We're here with Dr. Jackson uh, talking about creation and evolution. You can call in with your comments or questions, 866 
or send us an email, questions at tabletalkradio.org. Let's go to the phones. We're going to talk to Aaron in Arkansas. Aaron, what's your comment or question? Hey, um, earlier y'all received an email question on um, what's the connection between, like, like evolution and modern in the modern environmental movement. Right. I was wondering, I was wondering isn't it more like, um, I think you might have been talking about, like, the inconsistencies within peer review uh, concerning global warming. And I was wondering what you thought about that. All right. Thanks, Aaron. Thanks for your call. Uh, Dr. Jackson, what do you think about uh, the global warming debacle and uh, the science that's behind that? Well, my first, my first uh, response to that has got to be this. Global warming, the entire topic has been yanked out of the hands of the scientists and is now completely controlled by Paula Politicians. You know, politicians serve their purpose, and they're very important in our society. But they, they don't know a whit about science. And Al Gore is not a scientist. He is a politician, and he did a masterful job of politicizing a scientific topic. And now there's no sanity left in the topic. Uh, I, I'm not saying that there's no such thing as global warming. But I am saying that the serious scientists... Uh, who are researching this topic, say that tops, tops, ocean levels might rise 50, probably only 20 feet in the next 100 years. That'll give people plenty of time to get out of Manhattan. Uh, (laughs) I don't think there's a problem there. Uh, Plus, we'll be able to grow tomatoes in Siberia year-round. It will solve world hunger. Uh, and, And personally, now don't forget, I have a master's in environmental biology, but I am an evangelical Christian, a biblical literalist, a conservative in many ways. But I, I think the jury's still out on global warming, but there's one thing. It, there must be some of it happening with all of the chlorofluorocarbons, with all of the carbon dioxide emissions and everything that we have put into the atmosphere and we continue to put in. I know volcanoes do it. I know that the solar max you know, came a little while ago, and that could affect the, the, the temperature. But it's inevitable that we would be uh, increasing global, uh, global temperature some, but not the way that it's being spun by people who are trying to terrify the general public that there's some kind of crisis, and there is not. There's not. And then there's the people who totally deny that global warming exists. Then there's the people who totally uh, say that it's, it's going to kill us all soon and we've got to elect uh, the right kind of people to save us all. It's, it's insane because it's politics now. Emotions and not science. Uh, science says there is some global warming. Perhaps it could be part of a, a oscillating trend. It might not be. It probably isn't. But nobody really knows. But everybody talks like they know. Uh, what? Well, let's go to the, the emails then. Uh, we're going to go to uh, Tammy. She asked a question. What is the best resources for us to read or watch to help us be ready with answers to our friends? Oh, it depends on what kind of questions they're asking. There are good resources for biology. There are good resources for geology. Uh, you had that wonderful little commercial for the Big Bang TV show. The, <laughs> there's there's things for, for astronomy and cosmology. I think it depends on your, uh, uh, your, your grade level and your reading level. Uh, I can give you a, a list of, of three books that are very excellent for whatever grade level. You know, if you're on a college level, I think that Dr. David DeWitt's book, Unraveling the Origins Controversy, is probably the most comprehensive first book to read if you don't read any others and read other stuff later if you want. Uh, for the high school level, 
Creation, Facts of Life by Dr. Gary Parker. Covers biology. He's an excellent biology teacher and also covers uh, carbon-13 and some other of those radiometric dating techniques. That's high school. The, uh, the best book on the middle school level is out of print. It's by Patrick Marks. It's called Someone's Making a Monkey Out of You. Now, if you're interested in, uh, in the logical evidence against evolution, uh, Dr. Philip Johnson's uh, book, Defeating Darwinism by Opening Minds, is excellent. That's high school-level reading. If you have an unbeliever, a friend who doesn't believe the Bible, and you don't want them to hear a whole bunch of Bible verses or other Christian jargon in a book, James Perloff's book, Tornado in a Junkyard, is just excellent. I gave that to my father, who is an unbeliever and loves to read nonfiction, just because I thought it was so good for an unbeliever to read. Uh, those are just a few um, and uh, like I said, we're working on a homeschool curriculum uh, uh, that uh, Dr. Tom Sharp uh, has, uh, has commissioned us to do there. He's the uh, leader at uh, Creation Truth Foundation. And uh, that would be, of course, for, for people who already do believe that's, that's a, uh, actually a year-round uh, uh, teaching curriculum for science. That's not actually a little book you can pick up and read. All right, we have uh, Steve waiting on the line. Before we get to Steve, let's go to uh, line two. Caller, what's your comment or question for Dr. Jackson? Would that be me? Yes, it is. Okay. Um, <clears throat> Dr. Jackson uh, briefly mentioned the idea of heliocentricity versus geocentricity, and I've just uh, read a book um, recently about um, the idea that Scripture seems to promote uh, that it is the um, sun moving around the earth from such scriptures as the sun going uh, going down, the sun went down, the sun was risen, the sun was set, the going down of the sun. Joshua uh, commanded the sun to stand still, not the earth to stand still, so that he could have more sunlight to uh, finish off some enemies. Um, do we rely on the scripture and what it says, or uh, what are your thoughts on that? Oh, certainly. Certainly I rely on the scripture. Uh, I don't think that was allegorical. I think it was literal. It did say that the sun stood still in the sky, which gave a frame of reference. Um, I don't believe that uh, uh, at the end of Section A of your newspaper this morning that when they said the sunrise was at 731 and sunset is at such and such a time that they were promoting uh, uh, geocentrism by saying that the sun is setting and rising. Uh, it's a matter of perspective. It looks like that's the way it is from here. And nobody says, did you notice the beautiful rotation of the Earth's horizon into the plane of the ecliptic this morning? And let's say, did you see the pretty sunrise? Um, I, I don't think that it's bending scripture to acknowledge that they were talking from an earthbound perspective. Uh, that's, that's very scientific and very logical. Uh, and uh, it, plus scientific evidence, heliocentric calculations is what got us to the moon, got us to Mars, and got the probes to the outer planets. Uh, it was a Christian, uh, Copernicus, a, a, a uh, Polish monk, who uh, destroyed the old pagan theory that the sun goes around the earth, which was uh, Ptolemy, a, a Greek uh, philosopher who had that theory. Uh, now, when we talk, when the Bible actually says, in six days the Lord God created heaven and earth, 
and the evening and the morning were the third day, and the evening and the morning were the fourth day, and the evening and the morning were the fifth day. I mean, that's as clear as you can get. It's, there's no perspective thing going on there. So, yes, I do depend on the Scriptures. I realize there are people who would say, well, I'm, I'm bending Scriptures. But it's the way everybody talks today, and it's the way they talked back then, too. I, I don't see a problem with that. All right, and let's go to then Steve in Oklahoma. I think you have two questions. What's your first question, Steve? Hey, Dr. Jackson. Hey. Uh, the first one is would be how to resolve the results of radiometric dating where the results come out uh, of millions and millions of years. Okay. Well, that's terrifically easy because those results are all based on assumptions. They assume that the decay rates have always been the same, today as they ever have been, when there's evidences that they were faster in the past, at least in some major spurts. Uh, Also, they assume the sample has never been tampered with, even though it sat under the ground for a supposed two billion years, no earthquake, no magma, uh, no groundwater washed in or out any of the products or the reactants of these, these, uh, these radiometric breakdowns. Uh, that's there, there are so many assumptions involved in that. It's all guesswork. And, and no evolutionist uses carbon-14. They use other dating methods and, and other radioactive isotopes. Uh, carbon-14 has seven assumptions. All of them have at least four different assumptions. Oh, that's okay. In the absence of actually knowing, we must make assumptions in science, and that's fine. I have no gripe with that. What I have a gripe with is they're teaching it as though they actually know that radiometric dating works, and they certainly don't. All right, Steve, you had another question? Yeah, if uh, Dr. Jackson could speak just a little bit about the the dinosaur bone fossils found in the northern USA. I believe that uh, once they were opened up, they contained soft tissue that still existed, some red blood cells. Okay, Okay. what are you talking about? Yeah, at first I thought he was talking about the, uh, the, the fresh-looking bones on the north slope of Alaska, but, uh, but it seems like what you're talking about is the, uh, uh, the dinosaur bone that was found in the Hell Creek Formation in the Badlands of Montana, analyzed by Mary Schweitzer at uh, North Carolina State University in March of 2005. It showed up in the uh, journal Science and in Science News, and the whole world went wild about that. You can actually go to the PBS Nova website and watch information about this now of course the thing is they cracked open a bone and a t-rex upper leg bone a femur which is supposed to have been 68 million years old and they found inside uh bone cells and and veins with actual red blood cells in them then they you know when they found that they cracked open a bunch of other bones in the 80 million year old hadrosaur bones that's a duck-billed dinosaur they found bone cells not petrified not petrified they were the actual cells still there uh and uh this this is impossible if the bones are 68 million years 80 million years old because proteins break down you might have heard of polypeptides uh, or peptides, the peptide bonds that hold amino acids together and proteins will let go. And, and a, a long chain of amino acids, like 500, 400 amino acids long is your average protein. And uh, these things will let go of each other, and the, the proteins will turn into powder uh, all by themselves. Even if they're perfectly dry and perfectly preserved, they will just fall apart after 10,000, 100,000 years, tops, tops, tops. But this is... This is, you know, 20, 50 times that long, and there shouldn't be any red blood cells. And these things 
uh, evolutionists have tried to say these are little clumps of biofilm oozed out by bacteria. Well, these little clumps happen to be exactly the size of a red blood cell, exactly the shape of the red blood cell, and they're red. And they happen to be going through little tunnels in the bone where the <laughs> veins belong. I'm sorry. And they, they say that we, you know, try to fudge on things and call things anomaly. This is absolutely, if I was an evolutionist, I'd wet my pants over this thing <laughs> because it indicts them that the time frames are off. Either that or the known laws of chemistry and physics need to be rewritten. And I think that they're the ones who have a problem with the, with the laws of science now, not, not the creation theory. All right. Thanks for your call, Steve. That opens up the phone lines again. Uh, the number is 866 866- Eight five one five five two three, or you can email us questions at tabletalkradio.org. We're talking with Dr. Jackson of Creation Truth Foundation. He has a master's degree in environmental biology from George Mason University and a doctorate in science education from the University of Virginia. Uh, we are taking your questions live eight six six eight five one five five two three. Now, Dr. Jackson, I have another audio clip from uh, your favorite, Eugenie Scott. Uh, This time she's talking um, about proof of macroevolution. Let's get your response to this. But you see no weaknesses in the tree of life. You see no weaknesses. Uh, Again, we've gone several times that we all understand, believe, and we see every day what the layman's term, Mm microevolution. But we have proof of of a one, of a bird, like the dino bird that was in National Geographic in the year 2000 that was later proven to be a fraud, or the uh, the Piltdown uh, uh, Man, the missing link that's proven to be a fraud, too, or perhaps the peppered moth theory or whatever. Do we have proof of, of one species going to another? Yes, actually we do. Uh, you're talking about speciation, and we have lots of examples of speciation occurring. Speciation has to do with the change of one species to another. And we have lots of examples of that. We can show it in the laboratory. We can observe it in nature. So we can prove like Dr. Haeckel's drawings that a, that a, a salamander became a fish, became a pig, became a sheep. You, became you're talking a... about speciation. Um, Haeckel's embryos, this, this is more of this you know, inside baseball kind of stuff that I hate to take the time from other people to testify. Well, no, I, I would argue embryos, that the question but, is Sir, I, I do have an answer for you. Thank you. The Haeckel's embryo um, canard about disproving evolution is nonsense. Um, it's presented over and over in creationist literature. Uh, it has even the person they quote as supposedly uh, revealing the fraud of Haeckel's embryos, uh, Richardson, an English uh, uh, scientist, has said, look, they're really misquoting me, much as Dr. Arbor was misquoted. They're really misquoting me. Here's really the story of, of Haeckel, and his findings are still accurate whether or not he drew some drawings more similar to the other. The basic idea is there. The more recently you share a common ancestor, the more similar your embryos. And that's the take-home of that. Okay, again, that was uh, Dr. Eugenie Scott uh, addressing the Board of Education of Texas, answering some uh, questions from a board member. What do you, how do you respond to that clip, Dr. Jackson? Well, she made two uh, assertions. One was that speciation is happening all the time, that new species are arising all the time. Well, here... It's a matter of who controls what the definition of a word is. What is a species? They've been changing this for a long time. They used to just say any two things that can mate together and have fertile offspring are a species. Well, uh, you know, we've got uh, horses and zebras uh, and mules that can all, uh, donkeys that can all mate, and you've got zorses and you've got mules. Um, we've got uh, all the different kinds of, uh, of dog animals that can mate with each other, wolves, coyotes, jackals, 
dingoes, dogs. They can all mate with each other, and they'll call them separate species. The wolf is called Canis lupus. The dog is Canis familiaris. And uh, if they can mate with each other, why are you calling them separate species? This is really just separate varieties. So a new species, a new variety of dog, a new breed of dog will come up, and they'll say a new species has occurred. A new variety, a new breed of rose, a new variety, a new breed of field daisy, or a new breed or a variety of of, of musculus, a, a field mouse, a common mouse will come up, and they'll say, look, it's another evolution example. No, 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 this is just something that can happen by random uh, genetic drift, something that can happen by uh, interbreeding, uh, hybridization, and it could happen if evolution was totally not true. And if it can happen without evolution ever being true, then you can't use it as proof for evolution. It's totally transparent to ring speciation ideas. I mean, I could go into a whole bunch of things like that, but in every example, it's something that is not a process that will get you from velvet worms to bald eagles. It is not a process that will get you from uh, prosimian-type monkey-like creatures to humans. It is a process that will get you different breeds of humans, different breeds of dogs, different colors of moths, but you will not actually come up with a new type of living creature, which is what evolution says happened. Now, uh, uh, Dr. Jackson, we are broadcasting from uh, Norman, Oklahoma, and you and I have both been to the Natural History Museum located at Oklahoma University, uh, though not together. But uh, what I found so surprising when I went there was not that I found an exhibit from the perspective of an evolutionary worldview, but what I found was a museum that seemed to be uh, trying to convince uh, uh, someone coming through the museum that evolution is true. Um, so my, I have two questions for you. Is this typical of a natural history museum? And uh, secondly, um, why not just have a museum, even if you want to do it from a evolutionary point of view, uh, why not just present the material um, rather than trying to convince visitors uh, of evolution? Well, it, it, to answer your question, yeah, it's typical. Uh, because uh, if you're an atheist and you go to a museum of natural history, you're going to church. If you're an atheist, you don't believe God made us. You believe the ichthyostegid fish made us. And, or you believe that the Morganukadong airlie rat made us. And so you're going in there and looking, worshiping your ancestors and thanking them for making you, uh, which the Bible predicts in Romans 1.20 that uh, people would worship the, create, the creature rather than the creator. Now, that's okay. If you don't believe in God, I mean, there isn't anything else. It's the most logical thing is ancestor worship. What bothers me is, is not that the philosophy of evolution is taught in the museum. Um, they're, they're entitled to their opinion. However, uh, there is huge factual error in the, uh, the, the ichthyos fossil. All of the specimens have seven digits um, uh, and seven bones in the fins. The original discoverers said that its fins, its limbs were pretty much paddles, couldn't have man managed to do much more than flop around on land. That's what Jennifer Clack said in 1999 when they first found it. But the museum has got the ichthyos hopping up out of the water and jumping around at five uh, toes on a leg, not bones in a paddle. And so the, the stories that are woven, the, the, uh, uh, the rumors that just get end up in the museum models annoys me. The things that everybody in the, in the forefront of the world of science knows is not true are 
are codified in, uh, in plastic models of these creatures on display in that museum and many, many others. All right, we have a question from Sarah. She says, Dr. Jackson, please explain how the view of geo- ge- geologic process has changed and been revised since the eruption of Mount St. Helens in 1980. Well, you see, creationists have always said that uh, all the different layers, like all the layers that were exposed in the Grand Canyon, that these, these, these many, many layers of sedimentary rocks had to have been uh, deposited by a, a giant flood. And this is called the view of geology called catastrophism, referring to catastrophes. But evolutionists have always said that, no, 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 it didn't happen in one year from a giant flood on the Earth. It happened over millions of years that these layers gradually, gradually formed. And uh, so uh, when Mount St. Helens went off, you had, uh, you had geologic features that were formed. Uh, there's something called the Little Grand Canyon, which is one-fortieth the scale of the Big Grand Canyon. You've got a petrified forest now being fossilized at the bottom of Spirit Lake, where we thought that, you know, 50 different forests grew in Yellowstone at Petrified Forest. And we're seeing the same formation now being made out of trees that were alive in 1980 and that are now being mineralized at the bottom of Spirit Lake uh, in the upright position with their roots torn off and their bark all trimmed from the rolling around during this flood that happened in Spirit Lake, a very miniature of Noah's flood. Many things like that. And so uh, evolutionists have come around to thinking in catastrophic terms more, and they've applied this because they have no choice to the planet Mars. Uh, Every evolutionist believes that a flood occurred on the planet Mars. They think it was 3.8 billion years ago. The entire planet was flooded. Well, that's nice. A planet that's a desert today, they believe, had a global flood, but not Earth that's three-fourths water, two miles deep. Now, uh, that annoys me also. I, I, I'm annoyed uh, on behalf of truth and logic and reason. But they have found layers of, of sedimentary rock on Mars that are a mile deep, a mile thick of many, many, many layers. And they believe that that all occurred in just a few years. Why? Because they know that liquid water would dry up on Mars uh, within a matter of centuries maybe a 1,000 years tops, but that when that big flood occurred, see, Mars has only one-third our gravity, so all the water would dry up and float off into space. So they know you don't have millions of years for water to carve canyons on Mars. There's a canyon on Mars that's three times the size of our Grand Canyon. There are, on Mars has uh, sedimentary rock layers just as deep as ours, well, at least a mile deep anyway, in this one spot where we have seen an outcrop. And, uh, and they, they are forced to say that could happen fast because they know water can't exist for very long on the surface of Mars because it just floats off into space. Um, they believe the flood occurred from water coming up out from underground on Mars. Um, but, but they can't believe it happened on this planet. You see, there they're, they're not letting the left side of their brain know what the right side is saying. Uh, but Mount St. Helens proved that, uh, that uh, geologic formations can occur suddenly within a matter of days uh, producing features that evolutionists have always said take, indeed, millions of years. And with just a minute here to respond, you uh, bump into someone in, the, in an airplane or an airport or at the gas station, wherever, and they find out you don't believe in evolution, you're a creationist, and they just don't just laugh at you, don't even take you seriously. What's something that you say to someone in a situation like that uh, to defend uh, the, the, the truth of creation with just in a, in a casual conversation setting? Well, because I'm a science teacher, I kind of have a lot more information in my head about science because that's my job. And so I'll try to figure out what it is that's their main objection and at least try to get them to see that their objection is based on assumptions and not on any scientific fact. Uh, 
but 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 uh, you know not everyone is a science teacher like I am. So your average person is going to I think have to do just exactly what Jesus taught in the Bible. He said when you're called before the magistrates and the rulers think not what you ought to say, but the Holy Spirit will teach you what to say in that hour. I believe seriously whenever you're talking to anyone who does not believe in God, whenever you're talking to an unbeliever, when you're trying to witness about Christ, you need to do what Jesus said. Don't do the what would Jesus do, say what did Jesus say to do, <laughs> and that is listen to God's voice. Listen to the person. Listen to God, just like you were alone in your bedroom on, in your jammies praying to God. Listen to him however it is that you usually do, and and feel for the heart of God towards this person, and then you will then say what they need to hear. Not what you think they need to hear, but what they need to hear. Speak from your heart. Speak from the heart of God. And be a witness. A witness means you tell them what you've seen. Tell them what God's done in your life. That is what won me to Christ, not scientific evidence. Dr. Jackson, thank you for joining us on Table Scraps Live. So you have so many people. You have We have the Bible laid out before us in the first chapters of Genesis, uh, that God created everything in six days. And you have so many people trying to compromise, trying to uh, mix the two. Okay, maybe God did it, but he did it over thousands of years. Uh, but the question just really boils down to this. Can we believe what Scripture says? And the answer to that question is yes. But why? Why can we believe what Scripture says? Yes, the science it supports what the Bible says, of course. It's not going to contradict what, what Scripture teaches. But we can believe what Genesis says because Jesus died and rose from the dead. And Jesus testified to the veracity of Scripture. So if Jesus can do what he said he's going to do, namely die for the sins of the whole world and rise from the dead, we can believe that, that he created everything in six days. But the truth is, that's all for the purpose of the forgiveness of sins, which was won on the cross of Christ. Thank you for listening to Table Scraps Live, and thank you to Dr. Jackson of Creation Truth Foundation for joining us for this edition. I also want to thank Chris over at Pirate Christian Radio for getting us on the air, and Thomas for getting the phone calls for us. The next Table Scraps Live is February the 7th, talking about holy baptism with Pastor Eric Brown of Zion Lutheran Church in Lahoma, Oklahoma. Thanks again, and see you next time. You've been listening to Table Scraps Live on Pirate Christian Radio, a production of Table Talk Radio. For more information, visit our website, tabletalkradio.org.